Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. From Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought, that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed our servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender, choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds of milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Let's pray. That's why you get a theater major to read the scriptures. No, you did laugh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. May my words this morning be beautiful and true and right. Uh, May I honor you with this message. And uh, Lord, would you allow it to be nourishment for all of us. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Uh, If you were in the theology class on Tuesday night, this is going to be a little bit of a refrain from that class. Um, And if you're a detail-oriented person, you noticed that we advertised two things happening on the same night. We advertised our theology class and the Men of Nehemiah concert, and they're both on Tuesday. Go to the concert if you're on the fence. I will teach to an empty room. The, The concert will be way more fun than I will be, and then I'll put it on YouTube. But if you weren't going to go to the concert, come hang out with me. We're going to have a great time. We'll talk about peace this week. So, but if you're wondering, is Nike going to be offended if I go to the Men of Nehemiah? I will, but I'm encouraging you to go any, no, please go. Please go hang out with the Men of Nehemiah. Uh, but if you were in the class, I had them do this assignment on the, when we first got there. And it's a normal thing when you come to theology class. I have like opening questions. And so I'm going to ask all of you the same question. I want you to take a beat. And I want you to think about, if I presented you a person who's never heard of the concept of hope, maybe they're an alien who just landed here, and you have to define hope for them. But I tell you, you can use no Christian jargon. You can borrow nothing from our faith tradition, and you have to explain to this person who's never heard of the word hope, how would you define it? And so I asked the class this question, and then I was like, okay, give me your, give me your best answers. They mostly cheated and just used things from the faith tradition. I was like, ah, okay, we'll kind of let that sneak by. But if you're wondering, like, how would I define hope if I'm not allowed to use this, I hope that it's hard for you. Get what I did there? Hope, I hope that was hard for you. Because I fundamentally believe hope, at its best, belongs to the Christian community. 
And we'll see this as I roll on this morning in this sermon. And I'm not saying, don't hear me say, I believe people who aren't Christians can't hope. I believe they do. I believe God's goodness expands in the world so that people can enjoy things that God has given us, like faith and hope and love and things like that. But at its best, at its purest, truest form, I believe hope is a uniquely Trinitarian thing that belongs to us as the people of God. And so what we're going to do this morning, Martin and I are in this new sermon series for Advent. We're calling it the Advent of Hope, Peace, Joy, and Love. And what we decided we want to do is we want to pick a story each week from the Bible that demonstrates or maybe even shows a failure of that particular word. So this morning we're going to look at the story of Sarah that you heard Carter read to us. And we're going to use the story of Sarah learning about Isaac as a case study in hope this Advent season. So let me set the stage before we get to Genesis 18. God has already told Abraham, Sarah's husband, that he will be a great nation. A man with no children will be a great nation. And he tells him, I'm going to bless you immensely. Sarah and Abraham, when they're just living in Ur with their family, at the beckoning of God, leave everything to go to what will become the promised land of Cana. And as they go, if they experience trials, and now they're old. And I don't mean the kind of old you think is old when you're 18. You know what I'm talking about? When you used to think at 18 that 40 was old, and then you get to 40 and you realize 40 is so young. I mean old, like 60. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What I mean by old is I mean postmenopausal old, well beyond the years of what you could expect medically for a woman to be able to give birth. But yet, at this point in our story, God has already promised Abraham two times that he will have an offspring with his wife, Sarah. Sarah has suffered a lifelong state of barrenness. And barrenness for women in the ancient Near East carries a very heavy burden. Along with a heavy burden of shame and stigmatization where people wonder what is wrong with her. What has she done to bring this upon herself? And sadly, that stigma still exists today in many parts of the world. And Sarah wants a son. This is where our story picks up. So, what does our story teach us about hope? The first thing that hope we learn about in this story is that hope happens through suffering and terrible circumstances. Hope comes through suffering and terrible circumstances. Hope is not optimism. So I want to dispel that real quick. Optimism can look at circumstances and say, hey, the glass is still half full. It it looks like it may not work out, but I can see if this piece falls into play or this piece falls. Like, it's how every Texas fan feels right now. Maybe we'll get that fourth spot. Hook them. They got it. That's real hope. Yeah, that's not real hope. Yeah. I should have known better. What time? is It's past 11. There we go. Y'all are in. All right. Happy for you guys. So happy for y'all. <laughs> Optimism says it's going to work out. I can see how it's going to work out. Hope says, no, these circumstances have only produced death and decay. There's nothing in these circumstances that says this will work out, but I still believe that God's going to turn it around. True biblical hope is in the midst of circumstances that are bleak and says, but yet... I'm going to hold on to faith that God can do something here. Paul, writing to the Romans, and the Romans are facing extreme persecution at the hand of the civic leaders, says this very thing. He says to remind them, I want you to rejoice in your sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. What an interesting word, shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Hope comes through suffering. One of the Hebrew words for hope is kavah. And the linguists think that's interesting because the root word of kavah is, is kav, and kav is a cord. So the linguists, what they think is happening here is when you pull a cord real tight and there's tension in that cord, that's the kav being pulled. And when it breaks, that's the kavah, the release of tension is the hope. But there's tension. It's under duress. There's the pulling that's taking place before the breaking of the cord, which leads to the relief that hope is. There's great tension. Sarah's hope for a child is not a fresh, newly married, maybe next month type of hope. It's the worn down, time and time again, disappointed hope of heartache and longing. And so when the Lord comes and visits them and says, you will have a child, this is a message of hope that's been born out of suffering, not a fresh, oh, great, we're going to have a bit, great, we're, yeah, we've been trying for a couple months. No, no. It's been born out of long, hard suffering, which is why hope is so hard, because it requires unbelievable vulnerability. Anyone who reads the story of Sarah and hears her laugh incredulously and does not empathize with her laugh and does not empathize with her doubt has not lived long enough to know the feeling of having your hopes dashed upon the rocks. If you hear this story and you think, what a silly woman, she should just automatically believe, then you have lived a very blessed life and we wish you well. But for many of us with a few gray hairs, a little longer in the tooth, we know what it's like to hold out hope and for it to not come to the fruition that we want, which is why many commentators say it's such a gentle rebuke here. God empathizes with her doubt. Hope requires that despite the suffering, despite the no's over and over again, you're willing to open yourself up yet again to the possibility that God could change it. You've experienced the hardship over and over again, but it says, hope says, one more time, open yourself up. But if you open yourself up one more time to the possibility that God might move, you are also opening yourself up to disappointment, perhaps looking foolish, the people around you saying, why do you keep trying? There's no life there. Maybe derision from outsiders. Every time this fails, we hurt for you and we don't want to hurt anymore. Or perhaps most dangerously of all, when you open yourself up to the possibility that God will do something in an otherwise bleak situation, you risk being wounded by God. This is why hope is so utterly vulnerable. If you've been walking with God long enough, you've experienced what it's like to pray for something repeatedly and it doesn't happen or you've thrown yourself towards something that's had almost no chance of happening, but you deeply desire it, and you're asking God for a miracle, and you know how vulnerable it is. In fact, one person in the class afterwards says, this is why I don't hope, and this is why I don't tell people what I'm hoping for. It's too vulnerable, which is why we, as the people of God, should not be hope killers. In fact, we should be people that encourage others who are facing what would be a hopeless situation if not for the mercy of God, to press on, hold on tighter, don't give up. And it means if those moments of hope lead to disappointment, we should be the first to say, that was so courageous of you to be willing to hope there. What a courageous posture in life to risk for good, to risk for love, to risk for others. Hope comes through tension and suffering and it makes us vulnerable. But if these three remain faith hope, and love, then hope is a worthy thing to strive for in the midst of our suffering. The first thing we learn is that hope comes through suffering. The second thing we learn, though, is that hope grows through remembering. 
Hope grows through remembering. It's a pretty unbelievable thing that God says to a post-menopausal, lifetime barren woman, this time next year, you're going to be holding a baby. Like, that's wild. So how could Sarah have been able to receive this word with hope and anticipation? And the answer is not looking forward. It's actually looking backwards. Hope grows through remembrance. Sarah has already experienced God's supernatural acting on her behalf. For starters, God has called Abram and her out of Ur and and promised to make him a great nation. And God has already begun to bless Abraham. By this point in the story, Abraham has accumulated a great deal of wealth simply by the blessings of God. And then when there's a famine in the land, Abram and Sarah go down to Egypt and Abraham's a bonehead. And he says, hey, if you tell them they're my wife, he's going to kill me. So let's tell them we're sisters. So Pharaoh takes Sarah into his home. And you can imagine how Sarah must feel. She's in another man's home. And she wants, I'm sure, to be reunited to her actual husband. And she might be wondering to herself, who will rescue me from Pharaoh? God himself. God himself strikes the almighty Pharaoh and causes him to release Sarah from her captivity. God himself does that. It won't be the last time God takes down almighty Pharaoh. And Abraham, during this time, just happens to increase his wealth. He gains flocks and herds and donkeys and camels and slaves, which is awful, but it's a part of this culture which adds to his wealth. And Pharaoh, instead of saying, hey, you lied to me, give me my stuff back, says just take it and go. Because he doesn't want to mess with a man who has a God this powerful. Then, despite Abraham's stupidity, God re-promises him all of these things, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. Then their nephew Lot is taken away by kings, and Abraham, a man who just has people, goes and fights these kings and wins this battle. Is this because Abraham's a mighty warrior? No. It's because Melchizedek tells us, God handed your enemies over to him. That's a familiar refrain. Then God makes a formal covenant with faith and all of this stuff. Lacking faith, in the midst of all of this, they gave Sarah's maidservant to them, and she has Ishmael, and God comes back to Abraham and says, no, no, Abraham, I didn't stutter the first time. Your wife will give you an heir. God has already shown Sarah that he provides, that he rescues, that he's gracious, that he gives second and third and fourth chances, that he's a guide, that he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And now there's this God, the same God, sitting by her tent. This is not an ordinary God. So how can a post-menopausal woman who has struggled with life on barrenness have a baby? No, she can't. But God can. Sarah's hope for her future baby could have been cultivated and sustained by remembering who this God is that's making the promises. Not by her circumstances, not by looking forward, but by looking backwards at what this God has already done on her behalf and in her life and in her family's life. But lest you think that I'm telling you that I think Sarah should have carried the burden squarely on her shoulders of remembering by yourself, I want to remind you that God told her husband two times before this, just the two of them, no, Sarah is going to have a baby. Hope is sustained through remembering, but not just individually, corporately. Sarah needed her husband to be reminding her of these promises too because sometimes the hope for yourself is so overwhelming you need others to come into your life and corporately help you to remember the promises of God. Couples, if you are not putting your heads on your pillows at night and reminding each other of what God has done and letting that propel you forward to ask God for what you still need, you are missing 
a beautiful opportunity to have a marriage based on hope. Sarah could have benefited from the corporate hope that God is calling us into. We benefit when we remind each other of God and what God's done and who God is. And sometimes the situation is so impossible, you need other people around you to hope for you. You just can't muster yourself to do it. And so you look at your community and go, don't abandon me in this hopeless situation. Hope for me and with me. Be vulnerable with me. And that's what we do as the people of God. We throw ourselves at God and beg him for a different outcome for the people that we love. And we do it together. And when God comes through, we celebrate together. And when he doesn't, we weep together. One of the most powerful moments in ministry I ever had, I was, I was working at Watermark, and there was a man on staff named Brad. He had a two-year-old daughter who had a very severe form of cancer. And we got an email about 9 a.m. The whole staff did saying, hey, his daughter, whatever the blood work was, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but basically let's say she needed 100 for this blood marker and she was at 10. And the doctor said she may not make it through today. And we can't do the treatment that we need if the number doesn't get up to like 50. So he sends a prayer and he says, will you all pray? And everywhere we went that day, every meeting we sat in, we would pray for Brad's daughter. We prayed and we prayed and it was morose and we were sad and we cried and we prayed. And at about 3 p.m. that day, all of a sudden we start hearing gaffes and cheering and people applauding. Everybody's pulling out their phone. Her numbers had soared up to 90. And we just celebrated. I grabbed my admin. I said, we're going to go to Sonic. We got to celebrate. That's what hope looks like. You think those parents in the 10th floor of children's medical were as hopeful as they could be on their own? No, they needed a community to have their back. So if you are struggling to hope for something, look back and look around. Look back at who God has been in the world and in your life, but also look around and grab a fellow journeyman and ask them to remind you over and over again why hope does not disappoint. And ask them to sit with you in this vulnerable place. Hope is born out of and strengthened by remembering individually and corporately. And finally, the last thing we learn about hope is that hope rests on a person, not a thing. We just saying hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Martin said in his Discovering Jesus, Advent is personal. In the Old Testament, the two big words for hope are yakal and kavah. And more than half the time they're used in talking about we hope in God. And when we're not saying we hope in God, we're saying we hope in things associated with God like light and goodness and justice and peace. And interestingly, there are passages that say people have hoped in humanity and have been disappointed by that hope. And then Micah prophesies about a day when the people of God will no longer hope in humanity, but will hope in God alone to be their deliverer and their rescue. And Micah says a day is coming when that hope will be personalized. Hope is not about hoping in a thing or a circumstance, most importantly, it's about hoping in our Trinitarian God. This is why you should have a hard time defining hope without our jargon. Because hope is embodied in the person of God. Sarah laughs because her situation is utterly ridiculous. Except for the one who's making the promise. Her situation would be hopeless except that the one who's saying it's going to happen is the God who can make this kind of stuff happen. God, in his gentle rebuke, reminds her of this in his rhetorical question, is there anything impossible with God? Which, of course, is meant to be answered. There's, there's nothing impossible with God. God very simply is saying, look, if I can create the cosmos with the breath of my mouth and I can form two creatures out of the ground and 
life into them and make humanity, would it be too hard for me to put a baby in a womb that has been closed? In fact, that's going to be kind of my thing, putting a baby in a womb where there shouldn't be a baby. Y'all caught that, right? It's kind of being the business that he's into forever. He says, making babies in places babies have no business being is going to kind of be my thing. Hope is vulnerable and it's hard and it requires remembrance and practice, but it's ultimately worth it because we're placing it in the person of God. We're hoping for God to be who he says he'll be and to do what he says he'll do. And so far, he's betting a thousand. Now, does this mean we get everything we hope for? No. And it's a grand mystery why there are places where death has happened when we have prayed for life. But the story's not over. But the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. The promises of God find their yes and amen in the person of Jesus, which is why we can have a death-tight grip around hope, even in the bleakest of circumstances, because it's the one in who we hope in that gives us that confidence. Hope is born through suffering, sustained by remembering, and placed upon God. At the end of class, I let the class define hope using whatever jargon they wanted, Uh, And so this was my definition of hope. This is what I said. I hope it ends up in a dictionary someday. It won't. I don't have the credentials, but I thought I'd pretend like I was a dictionary writer. And this is how I define it. I said, hope is a confident disposition toward the future because you have placed your trust in a God who has been completely faithful in the past and the present. And so this confidence allows you to face uncertainty and suffering now because your hope lies in a person who can't be unfaithful. So hope means we can say this too shall pass and mean it. It's a virtue of the Christian and requires personal and communal practice by remembering. So that's our so what. This Advent, I want us to do more than talk about hope. I want us to practice hope. And so the the class had this exercise where I basically put up on the wall. I said, I want you to talk about all the past faithfulness of God. What are all the things you've seen God do historically and in your life? And then they had to put, where are the places that we often place our hope that's misguided? Money, career, things like that. And then I said, okay, and what are the things that you're still hoping for God to do? And then I said, we're going to write a one-word prayer. And then we're going to stick it on another habit. Because if you've ever read James Clear, Atomic Habits, fantastic book for all of you people who like to be super juiced up in life. And one of the things he says is if you want a habit to stick, just stick it on another habit that you never fail to do. So if you want to do 20 air squats, do it while you're brushing your teeth because you always brush your teeth if you're not me. You know what I mean? Like most of you always brush your teeth. And so this is why I said. This is the prayer I asked them to write. And I'm going to ask you all to do the same thing. When we end the service today, we're going to put this slide back up. You can do it now. You can pull out your phone. You can pull out your journal. But this is the prayer I want you all to do during Advent. And it's really simple. It's a one-sentence prayer that you can do every day you brush your teeth, every day you grab your cup of coffee, every time. Whatever rhythm that you do daily, stick this one on top of it. Here's your prayer. God. Because you are the one who, and you put some past faithfulness of God that means something to you. Rescued my family, saved my son, opened my, whatever God has done in your life or maybe in the world that meant something to you. God, because you are the one who, fill in your blank, I can hope for you to, and what's the thing you're asking him for? And be vulnerable here. What's the thing you're really asking him for? And then you end your prayer with, Be my hope this Advent. That's it. Write it on a sticky note. Put it in your car. Stick it somewhere where every day during this Advent season, we can have our one sentence prayer of hope. Because I believe if we end in these rhythms of hope, if we place this in, if we stack these rhythms, if we're bold enough and we're vulnerable enough to really give God our hope, then I think we're practicing Advent at its best.
So that's my encouragement to y'all. Jess, if, after the songs and all that, if we'll throw it back up there. But my hope and my prayer for us this Advent season is that we will be bold in our hope. We will be vulnerable in our hope because we trust the one in whom we place our hope. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are hope. And it is so hard sometimes, Lord. We know what it's like to feel like Sarah. When we think open ourselves up one more time to you. And yet we've seen time and time again when things look like they're finally hopeless and finally gone, you revitalize, you grow, you resurrect. So whatever my friends are hoping in from you, Lord, would you answer those prayers? And would you make us people of hope, sustained by your past faithfulness and encouraged to hope even more for you to be and do all that you say you are and will do? Bless my friends this morning, Lord. Make us hopeful. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.